Tonight we're going to be in the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn there, if you would. Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. This is the third installment in our Revelation series. Tonight's message is entitled, The Glorified Christ. I know you've been standing. I'm not going to ask you to stand again. But I do want you to reverently follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this section of Scripture. That way you will know the direction that we're going, and that will help you as we begin our study tonight. Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And his right hand, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will speak to your people and help us to see clearly the glorified Christ through the pages of your word tonight is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon spoke up and answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. When we hear these words, we want to shout Because Christ has guaranteed us the victory. But let's be honest. Sometimes we don't feel very victorious, do we? As a matter of fact, many of God's people are discouraged. 
Persecution is on the rise throughout the world. We're told that more Christians were martyred for their faith during the 20th century than all other centuries throughout church history combined. Even in America, Christians are ridiculed and maligned for their faith. Recently, some Americans have even lost their jobs and businesses for practicing their convictions. Even more concerning is the apathy that we find in churches across America. Church attendance is on the decline and a number of irreligious people is on the rise. Just this last week, I read a report from Lifeway Resources, and it's a research arm of Lifeway. They did a survey and they found that among families, on average, families attend church only 1.6 times a month. Now you think about that. I'm telling you that irregularity in attendance will not help strengthen our families and churches. There has to be a greater commitment, but we see this across the country. In order for us to grow spiritually, God wants us to be faithfully involved in the local church. And we must make that commitment. But this is yet another sign that we have troublesome issues with which to deal in our churches. When we witness these things, we wonder, where is Jesus? Didn't he say that the very gates of Hades could not overpower the church? The first century church faced many of these same problems. When Revelation was written, all of Jesus' disciples had been killed for their faith, with the exception of John, who had been banished to the island of Patmos. The churches he ministered to in Asia Minor had been severely persecuted, and many of them martyred because they believed in Jesus. But the threat to the churches was not just from the outside. There were problems from within the churches that posed dangers as well. God gave John a vision of the glorified Christ to share with these struggling churches. He reminded them of his presence and power at work, protecting and purifying them. Just as believers in the first century needed to be strengthened by this revelation of Christ so do we. Tonight, I want you to pay close attention and be encouraged as we encounter the glorified Christ. We begin in this passage, in this passage tonight to see the voice of the glorified Christ. The connection that we have is through John. Because God has chosen John to be the one through whom he would give this revelation. Notice with me, if you would, in verse 9, we see these words, I, John. This is the third time John referred to himself in the first nine verses. However, this time he added the demonstrative personal pronoun, I, to convey his amazement that such a glorious vision would be given to him. He also mentions in verse 9, your brother. He refers to himself as your brother. Although John was an apostle and one of the three in the inner circle of Jesus by the names of Peter, James, and of course himself, John, 
He humbly identified himself as an equal with his readers rather than emphasizing his apostolic authority. He also refers to himself in verse 9 as fellow partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance which are in Jesus. John equates himself as an equal partner who shared in the following three things. First of all, tribulation. And in this context, he simply means suffering. He's not speaking about the great tribulation. He also says he shares with them in the kingdom. This is the redeemed citizen submissive to the rule and reign of Christ. And thirdly, he said that he shared in their perseverance. That is, remaining patient during hardship and not giving up. Certainly that is a lesson we need today, isn't it? So we see here the connection to the voice of the glorified Christ that came through John. Now I want you to see the conditions for John. Look with me, if you would, again in verse 9. He says he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, approximately 10 miles long and 6 miles wide, located around 30 miles south of Ephesus, the place of one of the churches John had pastored. It was used as a place for penal banishment by the Romans during the first century. Political and religious prisoners were treated harshly and forced by threat of a whip to pound rocks with little food or clothing. John probably had to sleep on the bare ground. This would have been extremely harsh for John who was in his mid-90s and the only living apostle of Jesus at the time. His only crime was his faithfulness to God's word and his testimony for Jesus Christ. He also says in verse 10 that he was in the spirit. This was a supernatural experience beyond the bounds of the human will, mind, and emotions. John was under the full control of the Holy Spirit when he received this vision. He said in verse 10 that it was on the Lord's day. This is different from the day of the Lord, which refers to the fulfillment of future end time events. The Lord's day is Sunday, the first day of the week. Sunday is the day the early church set aside to worship because it commemorated the resurrection of Christ. Notice also in verse 10, John goes on to say, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The book of Revelation uses a lot of similes. These are used to help us to to understand the indescribable. For example, the word like is used 56 times in the book. Here John heard a voice behind him that sounded like a trumpet. This denotes a clear and compelling sound. This is not the only time a trumpet has been used to describe a significant biblical event. For example, in Exodus chapter 19 verse 16, when the law was given at Sinai, a loud trumpet sounding caused 
the people to tremble. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 says that the trump of God will signal the return of Christ for his church. So these were the conditions in which John wrote and uh, that he heard this great voice of this Lord and Savior that we worship, the glorified Christ. Then notice with me the command given to John by the glorified Christ. He commanded John to write in a book what you see. We, we read that in verse 11. This is the first of 12 occasions where John is commanded to write what he sees. Once in chapter 10 verse 4, he is instructed not to write. Also, he is commanded to send it to the seven churches. We also read this in verse 11. The messenger carrying the book of Revelation would begin at Ephesus and move clockwise to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Each of these cities represented a postal district in Asia Minor. These seven churches were critical to the message uh, being read in all the churches because this is the route that they would take to reach the churches in that day. So this is an important word that is being delivered through John to the people. This is the voice of the glorified Christ. And what he has to say is very important and we need to listen to what he says E.F. Hutton is an American stock brokerage firm. Uh, years ago, they produced a series of commercials that showed two people talking. Some of you might remember some of these commercials. Well, one person would say, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, then everyone would stop talking. They would lean in and start listening to what E.F. Hutton said. The scene would end with these words. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Now, when E.F. Hutton speaks, you may or may not want to hear what he has to say. But when God speaks, you and I had better listen because what John has to say about God and specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ is very important. And it's a message we need to hear. So we move from the voice of the glorified Christ to look at the vision of the glorified Christ. We see this vision is contained in verses 12 through 16. Notice, first of all, the focus is on his churches. John turns to see the voice that was speaking and saw seven golden lampstands. You can read that in verse 12. Verse 20 interprets the meaning as uh, the seven churches. So these seven golden lampstands represent seven churches. Seven is a number signifying fullness or completeness. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about the number seven and how important it was. And here that number means fullness or completeness. Gold was the most precious metal and represents purity. The lampstands elevated the light, making it more noticeable. Matthew chapter 5 verse 14 and Philippians chapter 2 verse 15 speak about believers being the light of the world. 
Then we see in verse 13 that in the middle of the seven lampstands, John saw one like a son of man. Now that's a use of a simile that I referred to just a little while ago. The expression son of man is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. This is a messianic title that Jesus often used to refer to himself. We see this in the gospels. For example, Matthew chapter 8 verse 20, Matthew chapter 9 verse 6, Mark chapter 2 verse 28, Luke chapter 21 verse 27. Here in verse 13, Jesus is seen among his churches. This should not be surprising because John chapter 14 verse 18 and verse 23, Jesus promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans and that God would make his abode with his people. Also, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, that he would be with his people as they dealt with sin in the church, namely church discipline. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus said he would be with the church to the end of the age. And this was to empower the church to live out the Christian life and to carry out the great commission that you find in that section of scripture. This must have been of great encouragement to these persecuted churches. And we should be encouraged by it. Knowing that Christ is walking in the midst of his churches. Folks, I'm telling you, Christ loves the church. The church is his bride. The church is composed of those people who have yielded their lives to Christ. Jesus died for the church. And here we see his love and presence and power displayed in the churches. We also, in verses 13 and beginning in verse 14 and following, we begin to see some of the very distinct characteristics of Christ. Notice, first of all, his clothes. The Bible says in verse 13, he was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. Robes were worn by prophets, priests, and kings. If you remember last time, we talked about Jesus, how he had a threefold ministry consisting of being a prophet, a priest, and a king. Here, the greater emphasis seems to be on the role of the priest. Among the duties of the priest, tending to the lamps was one important task. They would refill the lamps, trim the wicks, and remove the old oil, replacing it with new They would make sure the lights were burning brightly. We also read in verse 13 that he was girded across his chest with a golden sash. The gold signifies purity and the location of the sash supports the view of the high priest that is pictured here. You can read about the high priest as described in the book of Exodus chapter 39 verses 2 through 4. So these are his clothes. And now let's look more closely at his characteristics. These are personal characteristics of Christ. They're used to describe for us who he is, this glorified Christ. We begin to read now in verse 14. Look in your Bibles. Here we read, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. 
This description is also found in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 in reference to the ancient of days. The white hair conveys wisdom or omniscience. That is, Christ is all-knowing. There is nothing concealed from him. And also, uh, this, this white wool, this light snow, a white like snow represents purity or holiness. Christ is seen walking among his churches with infinite knowledge and unblemished purity. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 48, Jesus told his followers, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 through 27, we read that God's plan for the church is to purify her so that she will be holy and blameless. The process of sanctification that God started will be completed. Aren't you glad of that? That God is at work in us to change us, to transform us, to conform us to the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 we read, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Sometimes this includes the discipline of the Lord as described in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 4 through 11. Just as God declares us holy, he will also ultimately make us holy. Then we read in verse 14 that his eyes were like a flame of fire. The omnipresence of Christ enables him to see all things. He is everywhere present. Likened to a flame of fire, his eyes penetrate even the very hearts of all humanity. We look on the outside. But God is able to look on the deep recesses of our hearts. He's able to know what we think. He's able to know our attitudes and intentions. Also in verse 15, we read, His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. The omnipotence of Christ is surely in view here. This uh, this depicts his complete power and authority over all things. Speaking of the dominion of the Messiah King, Psalm 110 verse 1 records, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this pictures the Messiah King over all things and sovereign rule. And then we read in verse 15, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Exiled on the island of Patmos, John certainly heard the waves of water crashing against the volcanic shoreline. The thunderous roar it created overpowered all other sounds. So, too, the voice of the Lord appealed to John with authority and commanded attention. This is the same voice that spoke the creation into existence. 
and will one day command the dead to be raised. In verse 16, we read his, in his right hand, he held seven stars. We learn from verse 20 that the seven stars are angels of the seven churches. Some understand these angels to be literal angels who are guardians in each of these churches. However, this concept seems to be foreign to the rest of the New Testament. The term angels refers to messengers. That's what the term angel means, messenger. In this context, I believe the term angels refers to the pastors of these seven churches. These spiritual leaders are securely held in the strong right hand of the Lord. What confidence this brings to churches who are being persecuted. People who have been put to death were in the remembrance of the people and knowing that they might be next made them wonder, Lord, where are you? This revelation points out to them and reminds them that Christ is in the midst of your suffering. Christ is in the midst of your congregations and even your leaders, your pastors are held in his strong, mighty right hand. Keep in mind these seven churches represent the whole. The seven speaks of fullness, completeness. As I mentioned last time, there were more churches in Asia Minor than seven. And so this is beyond the seven churches. This would consist of all those churches in Asia Minor and all of God's church throughout Christendom. The universal church, I believe, is in view here. In verse 16, we also read that out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. The two-edged sword was an offensive weapon used by the Romans to inflict the greatest possible damage to their opponents. Its pointed tip and double sharpened sides resembled a tongue. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged Sword. The imagery here depicts Christ using his word to judge sin inside and outside of his church. And then in verse 16, we read, His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Can you imagine going out and looking at the noonday sun without a cloud in the sky? How long do you think you possibly can do that? Not very long. It would damage your eyes and lead to blindness. You could not stand to look at it. The face of the glorified Christ is described as shining like the sun. This is not the first time John had witnessed the unveiling of Christ's glory. Matthew chapter 17 verse 2 records Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. The passage states, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. 
The radiant glory was overwhelming to John. The only way he knew to describe him was to say that seeing him was like looking at the sun in its strength. Cinematography is the art of making motion pictures. While giving an interview about cinema, movie director David Lean said, I find dialogue a bore. It's a bore for the most part. And incidentally, I think people in the movie business are going to concentrate more on pictures than on dialogue because fortunately, you boys have got to sit people down like me and have them talk and talk and talk. Well, I think we can beat you by showing them pictures. Pictures have a way of bringing words to life. John did not have a camera to capture the pictures revealed to him on Patmos. But God gave him symbols with which to paint word pictures of the glorified Christ. The picture John saw struck him with holy terror. Now we come to verses 17 through 20. Here we find the view of the glorified Christ. What happened to John when he saw this? What was his response? What was the response of God? Let's read about it. Let's begin at verse 17. Here we see John's reaction. He said, when I saw him, As mentioned before, this is not the first time that John had seen Jesus. He had a close relationship with him as his disciple. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 13, verse 25, we read and and find that John was leaning on the bosom of Jesus while in the upper room. But this encounter was different. Because this time when he saw the glorified Christ, he fell at his feet like a dead man. That's how he describes it here in verse 17. He fell at his feet as a dead man. Again, this is reminiscent of John's experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verses 4 through 7 records this encounter and says that Peter, James, and John fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Seeing the glorified Christ is an awesome experience. We see numerous examples of this through the scriptures of people who encounter God and their response was similar to John's. Let me mention some of these. First of all, Moses covered his face. We read that in Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah said, when he saw this great vision of God sitting upon his throne, Woe is me, for I am ruined. That's in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Bible tells us, 
in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 that Ezekiel fell on his face. Daniel said, no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly paler and I retained no strength. That's Daniel chapter 10 verse 8. Peter fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Luke chapter 5 verse 8. And then Saul fell blind to the ground. Acts chapter 9 verse 4. We read in the book of Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some people boast about what they're going to do when they see Jesus. Let me tell you what we're going to do when we see him. We're going to do like John did. We're going to fall on our faces and worship. We need to be reminded that when Jesus came the first time, he came as a little baby born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger. He lived a life of obscurity. Brought up in Nazareth, a place that someone said no good thing can come out of Nazareth. A little village. At 30, he began his ministry. He never owned a house. He never had money of very much account. But he ministered to people and poured his life out into them. And then he died as a suffering servant in agony on the cross. But when he comes again, I'm telling you, he's not coming as a baby in Bethlehem's manger. He's not coming as a suffering servant. He's covering, he's coming as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is a glorious Savior. He's a brilliant Savior to look upon. And we see that depicted here in this passage. This is the reaction that John, one of his disciples, known as the beloved disciple, had when he saw this exalted Christ. But what does Jesus do? Let's see the reaction. Notice he gives reassurance. We, we see the reassurance here in verse 17 and 18. The Bible says, he placed his right hand on me. That's what John said. As John had done over 60 years earlier on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 7. The Bible says that he lovingly touched John with his strong right hand. Just as Jesus had done 60 years earlier. He placed his hand on John, that strong right hand, to reassure him. And then, verse 17, saying, do not be afraid. He speaks these words of comfort. He wants to calm John down. I'm sure he's filled with holy terror. So he says, do not be afraid. 
And we also read in verse 17 one of the I am statements that you'll find. I, I mentioned to you that there are seven I am statements in the book of the Revelation. We talked about that last time. This is one of them. He says here, I am. This is the covenant name for God. We read about this in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. And he says, I am the first and the last. The first and the last is a title used for the eternal God. It speaks of his eternal nature. In other words, he's the beginning and the end and everything in between. Also notice, if you would, in verse 18, he says, I am the living one. This means he is the source and the sustainer of all life. He also says in verse 18, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. He is the one who died for sinners and was raised in victory from the dead. This same Jesus is speaking here. And then in verse 18, notice also he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys provide access And reveal authority. Christ had conquered death and Hades, the place of the dead. Now when you think about keys, think about the keys in your purse or in your pocket. Perhaps you have a key to your car. That means you have access to your car at any time. And you have the authority to access your car. The same is true with your house. If you have a house key. You have access to the house and you have the authority with that key to enter that house whenever you please. And so here when Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades, he's speaking about his access and his authority. These are words of great reassurance to John as he is there prostrate before the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he is given some important information. He, he has a requirement spoken to him by Jesus. And I want you to look carefully here. This verse contains the basic outline of the book of Revelation. Now last time I gave you the theme of the book as contained in the first chapter. But here in verse 19 we see the basic outline for the book of the Revelation right here before us. Notice, first of all, you see the things which you have seen. That's stated in verse 19. The vision he just received is found in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. So this would be the first major point of the outline in the book. Then secondly, he says in verse 19, the things which are. These would be the letters to the seven churches as recorded in chapter 2 and 3. And we will begin next time looking in chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 at the church at Ephesus. And then the third major point of this outline of the book of Revelation is the things that take place after these things. This would be the third major point. The things that take place after these things, verse 19 tells us. That would be the future prophecies that will occur. They are found in chapters 4 through 22. 
So when we get to chapter 4, we will begin to uncover these prophecies and, and see what they mean and how they apply to us. So this was the requirement given to John by the glorified Christ to write about these things. You know, some life experiences are so impactful, we never forget them. They change us forever and they leave an impact upon our lives. For example, when I say 9-11, what comes to your mind? The terrorist attack on 9-11 where they attacked the Twin Towers, the Pentagon. But there are other events that, has a, that have a positive effect on us. Things that we remember like a wedding or the birth of a child. Of all of John's experiences in life, seeing a vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ was one he would never, ever forget. And friend, that should be true of us. When we see the glorified Christ through the pages of his word and understand a little more fully who he is and what he is like, we should never, ever be the same again. And whenever we feel troubled, whenever we grow discouraged, whenever we feel defeated, whenever we want to give up and quit, we need to be reminded of this vision of Christ walking among his churches, holding in a strong right hand the pastors, knowing that God has a purpose and a plan for each of us and for our local churches, and First Baptist being one of those churches. Tonight we've been reminded that Jesus is the glorified Christ. His powerful presence serves to protect and purify His people as they journey through this sinful world. We must do like him writer Helen L. LaMail tells us in the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Listen to the words. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior. A life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. That you would give us a glimpse of who you are. Father, words fail to clearly describe you because you are indescribable. But with this glimpse of the glorified Christ, we are encouraged tonight. We have a bright future ahead of us. We have an eternal home in which we will spend with you in your glorious presence. There's no event, no experience on life or in life that we have had that compares to what we are going to have in the future. All of life's experiences, all the good times and the joys and the celebrations and the victories, 
All those special moments combined pale in comparison to being in your very presence and feeling the total joy and satisfaction of being one of your children. Knowing that you have an eternal plan for us. We thank you for your wisdom, your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. We thank you that you are our God and we are your people. And this we humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen.